we're passing through a karma, something that has generated from the past, something that we need to pass through. And if you're passing through hell, almost to be grateful for that because you're passing through it. It's gone now. Dharma Talk community, Dharma Talk nation, Dharma Talk world, hello and welcome back to another episode, another year of the Dharma Talk podcast. I'm your host, Henry Winslow, and this is episode number 42. I hope you had a restful Christmas or end of year holiday, whatever it is that you might celebrate, and an exciting, revitalizing new year. As of today, we are back to regularly scheduled programming, new episodes of Dharma Talk every Thursday, and today we're kicking it off with a bang. I interviewed my friend, amazing yogi, an amazing human, Jerome Birdie, also known as Om Jerome. (laughs) Now, before we get into that interview, first, I do want to say thank you to Amy Lewis. Amy made a donation to support Dharma Talk, which I'm so grateful for every time any one of you listeners does that because it tells me that this podcast is valuable and that I should keep doing it. Um, You know, there are no sponsors for this show, at least not at this point, Um, maybe at some point in the future, but for now, um, it's an expensive hobby, basically. So any support that you can show financially or otherwise is very much appreciated. Um, you can make a donation at henrywins.com or dharmatalk.show. Those go to the same place. Okay, so about today's interview. As I mentioned, Jerome is a friend of mine from New York City where he is a yoga teacher. But before he went down the path of yoga, Jerome had a career as a writer, as a crime journalist, and we talk a bit about some of the experiences that he had in that line of work and how those experiences were cast in a new light once he started exploring himself through yoga and other practices. So we talk about witnessing and processing other people's suffering as a quote-unquote ambulance chaser. We talk about vipassana meditation and ayahuasca ceremonies, parallels and differences between these two paths toward a heightened sense of consciousness. And we talk about developing the intuition to recognize willpower and rigidity as separate from addressing suffering at its root. And if you stick around to the end, you're going to get Jerome's best recommendation for vegan pizza in New York City, so you won't want to miss that either. Please stay tuned through these announcements, and we'll dive into my interview with Jerome Birdie. Yogis, I have several events and workshops coming up in the New York City area that I hope that you can join me for. On January 26th, I am teaching a workshop at Three Jewels NYC on hips and twists, yoga for digestion and blockage release. On the weekend of February 15th through 18th, I am co-leading an immersion at Lighthouse Yoga School with my friends Jared McCann and Aviad Sasi. This is a great opportunity if you've been looking at going deeper in your practice, but you're not quite ready or maybe not interested in doing a teacher training. We're going to do all-day yoga, including asana classes, pranayama and meditation, posture clinics, and all sorts of yoga conditioning work as well. Also, you'll be surrounded by like-minded people who are interested in advancing their practice. Finally, I am giving a workshop at Yoga and Fitness Herald Square on March the 2nd on sun salutations. So if you're interested in joining any of these events, head on over to henrywins.com events. And for the immersion, don't forget to drop in my referral code henrywins to get 10% off the tuition. Okay, that's it. Hope to practice with you soon. Enjoy the interview. What's your purpose? What's your vision? What mark will you leave on this planet long after you're gone? I'm Henry Winslow, and you're listening to Dharma Talk, the only podcast where I interview inspirational yogis on how they're changing the world in their own unique ways. Whether you're still searching for your purpose or already walking the path, I hope these stories get you excited to live your Dharma. Hello, Dharma Talk community, and welcome back to another episode of Dharma Talk. 
Today, I've got my friend Jerome Birdie on the line. Jerome had a series of life-changing events before finding the path of yoga. He was shot in the leg with a stray bullet just two streets away from where he'd discover his yoga teacher more than a decade later. He then became a newspaper crime journalist in New York City and South Florida. After eight years, the light of the yoga path was awakened for Jerome during a shamanic retreat in Brazil. He finally found his life's work, so he quit his job and went to India to do his first yoga teacher training. Jerome, thanks for coming on the podcast today. How are you? My pleasure, Henry. Thanks for so much for having me, and uh, I'm having I'm feeling great. Good. It's good. my birthday. Yes, that's right. Happy birthday, Jerome. Um, thanks for taking a it's little a time out of your day to to do this with me. I know you've probably got plans to celebrate and and be with your loved ones. So, um, thank you. Well, I'm over 40 years old, so there's not much celebration anymore. Just kind of like do the practice and eat something nice and in bed by nine or 10 o'clock. That sounds like a good birthday. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's dive into the questions. My first question for you is what does the word Dharma mean to you? And what is your Dharma as you understand it today? Well, it makes me think of, um, the words of the Buddha. Your work is to discover your work and then with all your heart to give yourself to it. So that's what Dharma means to me, to discover your life's work. That may mean you're always on a path to discovering your Dharma, even when you're not ultimately doing what you're supposed to do, because it's going to lead you to that point. Whatever I've done in the past, I look back on it and it seems to have been a perfect perfectly orchestrated to lead me exactly to where I am right now doing what I'm doing, which is my dharma, sharing the path of yoga. In this moment, it's to share the practice of yoga with others, to develop it myself and to share it. And the more I share it, the more I become developed in it. So it's really a, a beautiful situation to be in. Yeah, totally. I love that. I love the idea of teaching as a way not only to share but also to further your own study uh, because sharing and teaching really does lead you to ask deeper questions and go deeper inside I definitely relate to that and resonate with what you just said I also like your point about not necessarily knowing where you're headed at any given point in your life um, there's like a there's a famous quote by Martin Luther King. I, f I forget the exact verbiage, but it's something like this. You don't need to see the full staircase to take the first step. And I come back to that kind of sentiment a lot um, whenever I'm mm -hmm. questioning what what I'm doing right now. You don't necessarily need to know. And maybe the audience that's listening right now um, heard your bio that I introduced you with and, and kind of related to that. So I'd love to hear your story, um, maybe fill the gaps in there to that intro about how you, um, how you moved from your childhood through newspaper crime journalism into teaching yoga. Yeah, and it's really amazing because if you would have... So I started the path of yoga in 2000. 10, I think around the same time you did, Henry, if I, if I recall. Yeah. Um, so uh, before that, if you would have asked me a few years before that, what's your dream? It would have been nothing in yoga. It would have been a newspaper reporter for the New York Times. But when I left that life of a journalist, I haven't really picked up a newspaper since. And I could, I always recall the lines of Mar the words of Mark Twain. If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. So it's kind of uh, <laughs> yeah. like that. But just to give you a little background on me, so uh, my first love was writing. And even in high school, I was really attracted to the beatnik writers, Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg and all these people. And they were the first one to really reveal Eastern philosophy to me. From that point high school drawn to the philosophy I just had no idea you could actually live it until years later when I finally discovered the path of yoga like almost 20 years later but uh, so that led me to writing I went to college Brooklyn College and I started to um, 
take courses in writing. Allen Ginsberg, people who know him, actually was a teacher, a professor at Brooklyn College at the time. So for me, it was like amazing to have him there at the school I was, I was uh, training in writing. But after a couple of years, I kind of hmm, fell out of the academic world. And be, because of all these kind of rebels around me and people that I was reading, I was like, why am I in school? I kind of decided to drop out of college and, and try this lifestyle that I was reading about with the uh, beatniks. So I decided to hitchhike across America. And I do that. I did it a couple times, sometimes on bus, sometimes hitchhiking. It's really nothing like it is in the books. It's really not as fun as it <laughs> seems in the books. I mean, I'm sure they edited a lot to get it into 300 pages. Uh, you know, it takes a long time. You're sitting there, you're sleeping in funny places and all this, but it's all part of the adventure. So after kind of living this life for a couple of years, kind of a bohemian life and having and writing a lot, fiction and poetry, having no luck, I end up back in New York City where I'm from. And I kind of led me in a path where all of a sudden I'm working in nightclubs, living this kind of unsavory life, everything that goes along with it, uh, stirring up a lot of, let's say, bad karmas. So at this point, I'm, it's 1999, and I'm really in living in an undisciplined place. And I said, well, I need to really check back with myself. These are Bill Clinton years. So I said, in 2000, I'm going to either join the military or uh, go back to college. So Thanksgiving morning, so it's the night before Thanksgiving. I'm working in the nightclub, and it's a really busy night, and I'm making a lot of money, bartending, doing uh, sort of all these funny odd jobs that ha happen in nightclubs um, and I'm walking out of there five in the morning walking to my car and pop pop two two bullets one whizzes by me the other one strikes me in the leg and right away I didn't know what it was it didn't really hurt it felt like someone maybe threw a rock at you but then you start to feel the heat travel up your leg because the bullets hot I look down and I see the blood and I just kinda get lightheaded sit down and the next thing I remember I'm in the ambulance going there going to the hospital but almost immediately I realized what it was I mean it was a stray bullet I didn't really care where it came from because I knew it was this is where I really started to believe in karma because it kind of awakened something in me that what I had been doing, living this kind of unsavory life, not being so nice to others and so on, it brought me to that point where, and it was a perfect karma because it struck me basically in the muscle, very close to the knee, but didn't break bone, didn't hit the knee. If it, if it damaged me in any way that would have been long lasting, I don't think I'd be like living this kind of yoga life now, especially as concerned with asana. So it kind of was enough to wake me up. And the next morning, uh, you know, it's Thanksgiving morning, I'm there with uh, uh, the bandages and so on. And, and I decide I didn't like all that, so I'm going to go back to college. I don't think the military is for me. I didn't like getting shot. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I go back to college. Yeah. I go back to college and uh, kind of something led me in the way of journalism. It was interesting at the time. I said, hey, you know, you can still kind of be creative, but maybe it's a way that I can actually earn money for writing because I... I um, wasn't able to earn money. And this is already, it's kind of, it was a new era. Allen Ginsberg, her, had already passed away. And I was uh, kind of there, and my new tribe was the journalists. And I became the editor at the newspaper, and things were going well. I really enjoyed it. I was good at it. And I started to be a freelancer here in New York City for the big newspapers, Newsday and the New York Times. And the first thing they throw you at is crime, of course. So you're throwing, you're basically what we call an ambulance chaser. You're sitting there for hours waiting for people trying to get a quote and this and this. And I was, I was good at it. You learn a lot of tricks in the streets of New York. And after a couple of years of that, at the newspaper I was working at, financial they connected me with their sister paper in South Florida, where I had taken all my New York tricks and I was really rising to the top in a, in a way to speak as far as street reporting goes because I had all these kind of little New York tricks. You know, there's a lot of hustle here, so we take it down there where there's less hustle and you can easily uh, rise to the top in that way. So I was doing that for quite some time, six years, six years down in South Florida, doing well, enjoying it a lot at first because there's a lot of drama and crime, which is what attracted me as a writer. Um, 
But after some time, especially with the rise of the internet, it became to be a lot more quantity and less quality. They put a camera in my hand and I had to like feed the internet and do all this stuff. So it started to kill it for me in that respect. And then in another respect, when I finally went down to, this leads me to the beginning of yoga. So I went to Brazil. Uh, my brother had told me, hey, you know, we can go to Brazil and try ayahuasca. And I grew up with trying psychedelics in my life, and they had been beneficial to me, but I never really had a guide. Like, and I was always curious about that, especially like this Amazon tea that's done in such a ceremonial way. It's nothing recreational about it. It's a very ceremonial purpose. So I still was on this path where I was leading a non-yogic life. I'll say I was drinking a lot, uh, eating meat, the diet was wrong, uh, chasing women all the time. So it was kind of like, you know, a normal life, I guess you would say. But I, I wanted something more. So I went down to Brazil, and the shaman there was very connected to the East. Before we did any sort of ceremony, he gave us chakra reading, iridology, and in the morning, there was even a yoga practice that we had to prepare ourselves. Also, before we went, we had to go vegetarian to purify ourselves for the tea. So I said, you know, well, when I go back to uh, Florida, I'll just go back to eating meat. No big deal. So, um, but it just never came back. So in the morning, we had yoga, and I, I connected right away. I was like, what is this? Before that, I thought yoga. I didn't know what the word was. I thought it was something women did in hot rooms. I had no idea what uh, what it was. I didn't know you could actually live this Eastern lifestyle. But I was it was in there. I think there's something from the past life. Like I even got an Om tattoo. I was just attracted to the symbol. I didn't know what it meant. In my 20s, I got this. So now I'm in Brazil, 32, and and having these amazing experiences, these profound experiences with the yoga and then with the ceremonies, which really put me through profound experiences in each sitting. We had three sittings in 10 days. And one was, and I didn't have any visual effects. If you read about ayahuasca, you hear about all these visual movies that are going on. It gives you exactly what you need. You can ask it. They, they talk about the tila as if it's a living entity. And I believe it as such. So uh, you can ask it what you need. And you, know, you just say, like, give me, show me what I need to see. And for me, it was profound suffering. So I was going through all this suffering because it was just filtering out what I had been dealing with personally and also through the profession for years dealing with crime reporting dealing with suffering people but not really processing it on my own like just going to the bar and drinking like what journalists do excuse me so finally i was processing this and rising to this whole different level it's a it's a sort of samadhi but as my teacher dharma mitra would say it's a fake samadhi and i believe that but it can help people like me who need a wake-up call like if you don't get it on your own or if you don't have this kind of near-death experience that can give it to you, you have to simulate it, which is what this tea will do. Uh, so for me, that's what it did. And right after that, after this experience with Brazil, which was also interesting because, as I said, my teacher Dharma is from Brazil. I didn't know him yet. So after this experience, I went... Oh, before I was done, the shaman had recommended to me to try Vipassana meditation, to learn how to sit because I didn't know how to sit. I was in Shavasana for all these ceremonies because the tea is so powerful. I couldn't sit for five minutes. So I, I decided to look up what this Vipassana is, and this is a beautiful technique. It's done by donation all over the world. And it's basically, it's not a religious thing at all. It just teaches you the technique of the Buddha, how to sit, how to observe. And it's a series, I don't know if you're familiar with it or some of the listeners are familiar with it, but it's basically 10 days. You're meditating something like from 4 in the morning to 9 at night. There are breaks, of course, but it teaches you gradually how to meditate and sit for an hour without moving. And this is a profound experience when you can finally get to it. You move through extreme torment into extreme grace, but you have to be really enthusiastic before you go to this retreat for the torment because you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're going to move through. So if you don't have that faith, a lot of people leave the second day because it's hell. It's really hell. But you have to move through hell to taste some bliss. Even in the asana, you might learn that. You know, the teacher might say, stay there. It's painful now, but you're going to move through it. And I've learned that on different levels. But this was one of my first times with that. So after the 10 days, you know, you're sitting having this profound experience. Wow. So this is the second leg of my awakening, I'll say, which was profound in a different way from the ayahuasca. They run parallel in a certain way. 
but this is obviously there's no uh, psychoactive chemicals it's kind of you're you're working on your own you're like wow i can reach these states on my own but it's very di- but in that vipassana bubble it's easier because you have the collective consciousness it's all you're doing uh, obviously new york city plenty of distractions but here you're basically living like a monk or a nun for 10 days so it's easier to reach those states of uh, samadhi or something like that or or just profound concentration so vipassana wow so now i'm having the second awakening and i'm like what's going on like i can't continue to do this crime reporting what am i really doing in the world i'm putting more suffering in the world people read the newspaper they think that's all there is they pick up the newspaper that's the first thing they read in the morning and it's just suffering and torture and this and this and they think that that's how they start their day and my even like i think of my mother like she starts with the newspaper and she's like did you hear about this and i don't want to hear about that if i can't help why am i going to pollute my mind with this like i want to think positive things, good things. And this is what I want to bring into the world. I know that the, there's suffering out there, but I think most of the world is good. That's what I believe. So to bring the, put more pain and suffering, fear and loathing in the world is not really contributing in a positive way. So I think, so I was, I actually went to Moab, Utah, which is a beautiful place. And I had some camping out there in September of 2011, full moon weekend. I was really lucky there. And I was, ha- and I basically had this epiphany, like, I have to stop doing this journalism. What am I going to do? And I had been practicing yoga. I continued the practice after Brazil. I was pretty good at it. Like, I, th- I feel it was a past life thing because I went, you know, I was getting very good, at least on the asana level, very quickly. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I'll go to India. What am I going to do there? Uh, I'll do a teacher training, you know, not to teach, but just to see, like, something to do in India. You know, I don't want to just go and hang out. What am I going to do? So I do some research and I decide, okay, Rishikesh, they call it the capital of, uh, the world capital of yoga. The Beatles went there, you know, sure, it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. So I go, I decide on a teacher training in Rishikesh. And not, not knowing that this is the second kind of point in my leading me to Dharma, which was his teacher is from Rishikesh, Yogi Gupta. But before, let me just step back for a second. Before I, so anyway, I quit my job. So this was September in Moab. In November, basically, I quit journalism and I moved back to New York for a month or so before I go to India in January. And I'm in New York and I um, decide on, let me see what yoga is like in New York. Because in Florida, I found some good teachers, but no one that I would have called, that I really called my teacher. Some good teachers, but no one for me that I would stick to. So I go to New York, went to a few teachers here. Dharma was one of them. And at the time, I just, I don't know, maybe I wasn't ready. I thought there was something there, but at the time, the asana was too hard. I couldn't really understand him. His English is not so good. Um, so I said, oh, there's something there, but I don't know. So December, that's December. Then I go to India. And I'm there a couple of months, do the teacher training, swimming in the Ganges in India was a, what, an amazing experience. But again, I found no teacher there. The Ganges was kind of my teacher, which was good. I'm happy that I didn't find a teacher in India because then you have to keep going to India, <laughs> which is not so easy to do in New York. Like these people going to Mysore all the time, I'm sure they enjoy it, but I'm just, you know, I'm glad I don't have to keep doing that. Uh, so I'm back in New York now. And for a year, I'm going to all the famous people here going to all these different practices and enjoying them, but no one really that is resonating deeply within me. So I'm like, wow, I guess, geez, I just have to do a self-practice. I don't know what it is. But I end up back with uh, Dharma on January 1st. My anniversary is coming up. January 1st, 2013. He had a vegan buffet, so maybe I was more attracted to that, a free vegan buffet, (laughs) and a two-hour class, which he he uh, he gives often. Uh, actually, he'll he'll give one January first this year. So uh, I take the class, and it was packed in there, and uh, and I loved it right away. It's as if I was ready. I had to do all these things I had to do to purify myself. Actually, the teachings to to receive the teachings. He has this saying that. Uh, you have to sharpen your sixth sense to see the halo on the saint, which I love. Because, you know, some people might just see uh, a Buddha. There's Buddhas everywhere, but we don't see them. Maybe we just see some old man or a homeless person or who knows. But there might be a Buddha. We don't know. But you have to be at that level, that mental level to see it. You know, a thief recognizes a thief right away. Um, 
So, and after the class, I went up to him and I said, Dharma, I love the class, amazing. And as I said, the room was packed, but he put his arm around me and he's like, I could see when you came in, you were skeptical. And I was from the last class. I wasn't sure about it. And, uh, but that was it. So I've been with him uh, ever since doing the Dharma yoga practice. It's taking me very deep in the path and uh, giving me the life really that I have today, which is I would have never dreamed of, like sharing the yoga practice now all over the world. I, I travel, but I kind of have this happy medium where I still have roots in New York. I come back here and I teach. I go abroad a month or two months, teach, come back. So I kind of like that balance. I'm not fully immersed in the nomad life. I don't know if I'd want to be, maybe one day, but I enjoy this kind of uh, ebb and flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that right. brings us to uh, where we are. Well, first of all, I have to say I can tell that you have a background in, in writing and journalism because you do a great job of, of weaving this narrative and, and keeping me and probably the listeners also on their toes just waiting for the next chapter. Um, I have a lot of responses to that, and I guess I'll take it back to the beginning first. Yeah. When yeah. you talked about um, your time as a crime journalist, you, you called yourself an ambulance chaser. And that's a, that's a really kind of um, visceral kind of reaction that I had because it reminded me of this movie that came out a few years ago called Nightcrawler. Did you ever see that one? No, I haven't. It was with Jake Gyllenhaal. It's Jake Uh Gyllenhaal and he plays exactly that, an ambulance chaser who's out um, catching the, the news. And he's so driven to be the first person on the scene whenever there is some sort of crime that, um, it made me think, you know, this is a very provocative film, but your experience, the way you shared it, echoes the sentiment, which is you surround yourself with this suffering and these dark episodes so much that it starts to integrate into you. And I don't want to spoil the movie, but I'll say that toward the end, he becomes Jake Gyllenhaal's character, becomes less of an observer and more of a participant. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. go that way. Sure. For sure. So I can see what you mean when you say that that started to weigh on you. And even if maybe your intuition wasn't as sharpened then as it is now, in retrospect, you can see how that um, affected your your day-to-day. So then you told us about the ayahuasca and your vipassana as two kind of eye-opening experiences. Could you talk a little bit more about the differences between those two. You said Dharma Mitra calls the ayahuasca assisted samadhi, a fake samadhi, um, maybe with, without, uh, an agent working with you. It's something more, um, well, I don't want to, I don't want to steer the answer of your question too much, but what was the difference in your experience with those two, um, practices? Sure. The difference is, uh, ayahuasca is instant. I mean, you take the shot, of tea and you know within an hour or something boom there you are vipassana for instance is i'll even call vipassana like a a microcosm of the yoga practice because even vipassana the 10 days you're doing it in a very short time like people who actually practice vipassana and for those who don't know vipassana is a meditation technique before you get to vipassana you're doing what they call anapanna just observing breath through your nostrils till it becomes so subtle you observe the breath pass through each nose hair. You can really feel it pass. But that's only for a couple of days. You're doing anapana, then you move to vipassana. But people, So you're kind of in a crash course. And that's why even vipassana, like it's hard to maintain it outside of vipassana. Very few people I've met that uh, maintain this. They ask you to do two hours a day, one in the morning, one at night. Very few people I know uh, maintain that maybe they do an hour in the morning but it's very difficult so for instance like people who are really on the path they may do just anapana the preparation for 10 years then they move to vipassana which is kind of like a body scanning method they call buddha the first quantum physicist because you feel yourself almost on a quantum level uh, um, so that that's what i would say the difference is like vipassana any sort of yoga practice takes time so you have to be patient and be there with it um ayahuasca it's the same in a way like you go through suffering you, you have a purge you're throwing up and it's you're going through hell but um it's kind of five hours and you're done you had your hell you had your awakening and that's it you know i don't know are we gonna take a nap or go for dinner or something but um 
so it's like that. You know, it can be very fast or it can be slow. I think it's nice. People who are already on a yoga path, I don't th- I don't really recommend that they need to try this vipassana. But people who have because they found the yoga path somehow, some karma brought them there. But me, for instance, I would have never gone there mm. if I didn't have this crash course, if I have this kick in the head. Like the, the ayahuasca really shakes you. Mm-hmm. So it's a real thing that can really, oh my God, there's more to life than this. I need to do something about it quickly. Life is short. You know, I need to like wake up a little bit here. Yeah. And, and there's a know, long path of awakening. That, that's an idea that, that I think is really important and kind of at the crux of really what, what my mission is for these conversations on Dharma Talk is how do we cultivate the awareness to recognize what we're doing that is actually causing us suffering because it's not serving our purpose? And, you know, there, that's a really loaded question. I realize that. But to kind of unpack it at a tactical level and an experiential level around specific moments is one way that we can get a better picture of that. And we do, and I do it by talking to all these different people and hearing their perspective on and their personal paths. So, you know, back to that question about the ayahuasca versus the vipassana, you, you kind of attributed both of those two episodes for helping you realize that you were surrounding yourself with suffering and that you wanted to remove yourself from that scenario. And that's what took you out of the crime journalism into something else, even if you didn't know what the answer was right away. Is there any more um, specific that you can get about how that revelation came to you? And I know that there's something definitely ineffable and sort of hard to place in words about these experiences um, and that's why it's so important to experience them yourself, but any, any further you can go with that and articulate it in words. I think it goes down to what, uh, the yoga scriptures may call or yoga teachings may call, uh, the witness. So you like stepping outside of your ego a little bit. Ego is not a bad thing, but we're locked inside of it until you have any sort of, uh, awakening through any sort of spiritual experiences. It doesn't have to be ayahuasca or vipassana. It could be whatever it is. Um, you're stuck in the ego. You're thinking that this body is it. These suffering is it. This is it. You know, there's this is it. I'm stuck here. Mm-hmm. But if you can, through certain practices, uh, the ayahuasca, I'll say, is the first one where I felt a separation. Yeah. You know, the, the, the lowercase self and the higher case self. Oh, there's something else here. There's a witness here. You start to feel the witness, the observer, which is what I feel in the Vipassana, which is what I feel in the yoga practice now. When I'm lucky, it's not all the time, but when I really hone in on it, it's like, ah, yeah, you can feel the separation between lower self, higher self. Lower self, the ego, the higher self, you can call it your soul. The one that's always watching, always there. And when we can identify with that one more, we're still going to have pain there's gonna you know life is suffering that's the first noble truth it's, it's there but if you can identify if we can identify more with that higher self the witness it's less and less because we realize we're passing through a karma something that has generated from the past something that we need to pass through and uh, my teacher really helped me to understand this also like if you're passing through hell almost to be grateful for that because you're passing through it. It's gone now. You mm-hmm. learn this in Vipassana too. You're sitting there. It feels like hell. Your knee's going to explode. But no, that's the mind. They call it, um, I forget what they call it, samkata, sam, samskaras, sorry, samskaras. Mm-hmm. So you're passing through these things that are arising and passing away, arising. You observe. It teaches you the art of observing, which is so crucial if you don't want to go through life suffering. This is the thing to observe, to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, a, oh, sorry, watching, go ahead. Indra became king of the gods by watching. Indra became king of the gods. I love that line from the Dampada. Yeah, that sounds like it to you has uh, brought you another kind of level of objectivity as well to 
spend more time identifying with the higher self versus the lowercase s self because then you can look at the suffering and see it for what it is rather than some kind of story that you're attached to which is really yeah. only attached to the ego i also it caught... an objectivity period before that it's just subjectivity <laughs> when you're just identifying with ego you have no objectivity it's just subjectivity Correct. so to step outside is to become objective as as every journalist's goal become objective <laughs> Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I was wondering if that w might tie back in. Um, the other thing that you alluded to was this ability to hone your sense of intuition over time. And, you know, I noticed that you called out a few different things that in hindsight, in retrospect, all make sense as steps toward meeting your teacher, Dharma Mitra. You know, you went to Brazil for the ayahuasca ceremony. Then you went to Rishikesh, which is where Yogi Gupta, Dharma's guru, was teaching. And then, you know, you had this um, attraction to the, the vegan diet ever since the ayahuasca ceremony. So that was one little magnet that pulled you back to Dharma. So all these things, you know, you probably didn't notice them at the time or have the foresight to recognize that they fit together nicely. But as you kind of develop this ability to be objective, I think there's also the intuition that comes with that. Can you speak a little bit about that and, and how you've practiced that, whether it was intentional or um, accidental or, or consequential? How I practice developing intuition? Yeah, developing the intuition. Well, just by, <clears throat> once I've, discovered that yoga is the path for me i mean i think everyone should have a sadhana it doesn't have to be yoga it can be music something where you're connecting with something outside of yourself where you're forgetting time and space where you're beyond all that and that's where you can really move into developing the intuition it's not like i'm doing practices i need to develop my intuition i this is what i need i'm just doing my sadhana and yeah. everything else comes like uh, Patabi Joyce, practice and all is coming. I think that's what he's talking about. Like, just do your practice. You have problems with your girlfriend, with your family. You don't have to go always deal with problems head on. And I've learned this also through any bad habits, I'll say, including eating meat. Well, I'll say it was a bad habit. I used to smoke cigarettes, a bad habit. I never deal with these things head on. I deal with them holistically. So even developing intuition. So do your sadhana. You find, you're lucky enough to find a sadhana. You do that every day. Be consistent in the practice, most important. Uh, even if you're, you know, you have a crazy work schedule, get up early. Do it five, ten minutes. I love the Zen saying, meditate 20 minutes a day. Unless you're too busy, then meditate for an hour. Because right, you're never right. too busy. Everyone has time. Get up early. You know, like, it's. I have a dog now, and that cut in on my practice. So I always say, like, my brain is cut and I don't have a girlfriend, family, nothing like that. Fortunately or unfortunately, I don't have time to myself. So half of the brain is yoga. Half of the brain is uh, food, mostly avocado. But now the dog, <laughs> so you can always find room. So the dog takes up a lot of time. Like it's a full-time job in some ways. Like she's high energy. I got to take her out all the time to play. I have to, so I wake up even an hour earlier to get in the sadhana get in which includes the dog now too i have to like take her for a run every morning yeah. so it includes that there's always time i mean i don't know some people have three kids but i think there's always time to get five minutes whatever it is get yeah. time to do your sadhana and then things will come things will come little by little it's all very subtle suddenly happens very gradually you just be gradual and it's like the asana that's why i love the asana on a gross level because it's so easy to see any poses that have opened up to me, I was never really working on a pose, working, working, working on a pose. I, that's not my approach. It's just to do the practice. And then all of a sudden, wow, look at this. Three new poses, four new poses opened up. Where did that come from? It's magic. I don't know. It's not magic. It's just being consistent and gradual and gradual and flowers come just like yeah. that. Yeah, totally. And I, and that the point you made about the bad habits, I think, is a really important one. Because, you know, maybe with the exception of the meat, that, that could be an ignorance thing. 
Um, yeah. you know, especially with so much different information about diet, if you're not looking at the ethics of it, but for something yeah. like smoking cigarettes or some other destructive habit, like drug abuse, everybody knows that it's bad, but you still do it. And so the answer is not to tell yourself why you shouldn't be doing it for many people. That is a solution not a problem. It's a solution to something deeper. So I think that's why having your practice is the most effective way to get to the root of those things. The practice takes you deeper inside to find the actual source problem rather than Absolutely. just, like you said, you can't approach these surface level problems head on necessarily. You can, but it may be wasted effort. So I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I see that time and again, people who are trying to maybe, my parents are, they're both smoking cigarettes, people who are trying to stop with this or this or this, like it just, it doesn't, it doesn't always work. I mean, rarely does it work. It's mainly willpower and willpower is good. We have the tapas, willpower is good, but you can break. So you need something a little bit deeper, something to remove the root as we talk about in Vipassana, pull it out from the root and mm. then it's gone. But if the root is there, you know, it's just willpower, like trying, oh, every day is a struggle. But if you remove the root, it's like, ah, freedom. Yeah, right. So ever since becoming um, more devoted, so devoted to the yoga practice that you actually decided to teach it as your main livelihood, have you come across issues like that again? Maybe new ones that come up that you had to put those put that philosophy into practice where you had to go in and find the root. What sort of struggles have you come up against as a yoga teacher? Hmm. Like personally or teaching the teaching the as a How teacher I, either. Uh, um personally it can be hard sometimes <clears throat> With the food, I need to check in now and again. Like I try to, I understand personally that I feel like the vegan diet is uh, the best one for me and maybe for the world. But, uh, you know, the, the world as an organism, maybe not every person in particularly. But um, traveling a lot, it makes it difficult. And I find myself slipping back. Uh, you're in Italy, of course, I'm eating the mozzarella and... Uh, things like this, or maybe I'm going overboard, like uh, eating too late or eating too many sweets. Yeah, I got a sweet tooth too. I like the tiramisu. So uh, just <laughs> control over that. So every once in a while, I try to check back, rein it back in, maybe do a cleanse, a fast for a day or a couple days, rein it back in and try to get back on the path. But I think these things are really beautiful to fall and get back up again to fall and get back up again. There's a nice Zen proverb, uh, down eight times, up seven, such is life. I'm sorry, other way around. Mm -hmm. Down seven times, up eight, such is life. So Sometimes it is the other way down. around. Sometimes yeah, that's sometimes life too. <laughs> that's good too. That's good too because it <laughs> makes you more compassionate. It makes you more, you know, when I was a strict vegan, I got to tell you, like, with it came arrogance. It can come with arrogance. Like you ever hear that phrase, how do you know someone's vegan? They fucking tell you. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So I try, yeah. and, and actually I was doing my second Vipassana where I got really sick on the tofu. I think it was the tofu. I, I mean, I blame the tofu. And so, and in Vipassana, those who know, like it, it's vegetarian, but they have vegan options. So I was staying vegan, but I got really sick and I was like, oh, I can't do that. I don't know what it is. So I finally got over the sickness, and they had macaroni and cheese. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to eat this macaroni and cheese. And if I get uh, sick, I'll never eat dairy again. But uh, it sat fine. And I was like, okay, so you know, I'm kind of more like strict vegetarian, lazy vegan these days. But uh, uh, it's nice because it just makes you... In my in my case, it makes me more accepting and like this. I just don't want to be so rigid because the rigid will break. You have to be like kind of a little bit loose. And even um, Dharma will talk about that once in a while. Like once in a while, you have the mozzarella cheese. It's okay, yeah, but then yeah, yeah. you clean the house. You have to clean the house. Just know, you know that. Hey, you know I'm slipping. I, I'm never like saying 
bit about I'm not beating myself up over it, but I'm enjoying. We're here to also enjoy the senses. Don't hurt anyone. You know, I'm not. Um, I'm at a point where I'm not going to eat a, a, a sentient being, but enjoying the senses. And if that comes, and even if you're a person who's like, I need to eat meat once a while, then I always tell people, then do it. You know, until it totally drops off from the root, not interested anymore, then it's good to go. But if you feel that, then you have to enjoy once in a while. Enjoy the senses and move on and keep doing your sadhana. Everything comes from there. It will drop off. Everything that needs to drop off will drop off. Maybe not this lifetime. I mean, I'm fortunate to really believe in karma and reincarnation. So we do our best this life, next life. It keeps getting better and better and better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really, really wise. And I, I spoke to Yoshio Hama on this podcast also, and and he had uh, kind of a similar story about um, spending some time with Dharma, where Dharma's lesson for him was really you can't be rigid with yourself, even when it comes yeah. to these uh, righteous decisions that you have about your diet. Like, yeah, the rigidity is actually more harmful than the benefit of what you're trying to do. So I think that's yeah, that's a really great point to make and. And it kind of comes back to the same idea about like, yeah, this, this issue of finding the problems or the, the root causes of things that show up at the surface level of your, of your life. And I, I also, um, keep a vegan diet and it's fairly new for me, uh, less, less than a year. It's only been like five months now, but, um, to me, it feels like I'm actually gaining more than I'm giving up. So I have no at least so far, you know, I'm new to this, but so far no craving to go back to that. But I think as soon as there is a craving for that, then it becomes another form of suffering. And that's, that's not the point, you know? Yeah. As a, I love the Buddha, if your circle of compassion doesn't include yourself, it's not complete. Right. And I would offer you advice. Try to, uh, stay out of Italy. <laughs> yeah. If you don't want to eat. Yeah. Greece too. You know, they love well, I, d I did a little trip through Italy earlier this year. So fortunately, I got that out of the way and I was totally sick of cheese and pasta uh, by the good, end. Good, good. <laughs> yeah. Um, People okay. ask me if I speak Italian. Of course I speak Italian. Pizza, pasta, tiramisu. Yeah, that's all you need to know. All you need. <laughs> No, but the good thing about living in New York and also not just New York, but it, like situated in this point in time where uh, plant-based eating is becoming more and more common and people have lots of different reasons to do it for their health, for, you know, the moral, con the, the moral considerations. And also, as you said, the health of the planet, it's becoming a lot easier to get all of those um, taste cravings met even without touching animal proteins like i don't know if you've ever been to this pizza place in in uh in greenpoint called screamers pizzeria that place is just amazing like it it tastes like traditional new york pizza but yeah all the cheese is made from nuts and stuff so it's really cool it is but also in that vein you have to be careful not to become one of the junk food vegans because yeah. it's easy to slip down too Definitely. you know they have everything the same thing but it's all it's not so healthy either so it depends what you're what you're going for for vegan pizza i recommend uh, any new yorkers double zero in the east village amazing super amazing and uh -huh. uh, and healthy and a little bit lighter than screamers but right. i love screamers too <laughs> okay cool um thanks to the the pizza wreck i'm sure many people yeah, are listening to new york will, will appreciate that yeah anyone that comes to new york uh, usually i'm the foodie like i i can tell you where to go for veggie stuff Nice. Nice. Okay. Um, Jerome, apart from getting your message out on the podcast, what are you doing today on your birthday to live your Dharma? Well, I woke up uh, early, 5 a.m., and did my practice. I uh, Then I went to the dog park for an hour, as uh, Dharma is always saying, be nice to your pets. So I have to be nice to the pets. Um taught a yoga class, which I was so fortunate to do. I really love to teach on my birthday. I think it's, it was such a beautiful thing, and some of the students knew and were really sweet to me, bringing a couple of gifts. And speaking to you, I'm really happy to do this and, and share the practice this way also. And, um, you know, have some nice food, and like I said, I'll be in bed by 9 or 10 o'clock. Nice. <laughs> Start over nice. again tomorrow. 
Cool. Okay, Jerome, let's move on to the final section of the interview, the prana round. Uh, for I know that you listen to the show, so you know the rules, but I'm going to say them for the benefit of the listeners. I'm going to ask you six rapid-fire questions and ask you to answer minimum one word, maximum one sentence. Okay? Yes. All right. In one word, why do you practice yoga? Realization. What's your favorite yoga pose and why? Handstand because it's so hard. I like hard poses too. <laughs> yeah. What's the single best cue or piece of advice you've ever received from a yoga teacher? Dharma Mitra, do the work because it needs to be done. Not because you want to do it or don't want to do it, because it needs to be done. Mm. Sounds like a Bhagavad Gita lesson as yeah. well. Recommend one book, modern or ancient, for our audience. The Kingdom of God is Within You, Leo Tolstoy. All right. Really beautiful book from a yogic perspective, but he's, uh, he's talking about Christianity, but he has a very sharp yogic perspective. I mm -hmm. love Leo Tolstoy. All right. Is yoga for everyone? Yes, it's for everyone. It will keep you sexy. <laughs> That's all everyone wants, right? Exactly. <laughs> but not on the out, not just on the outside, but on the inside. You know, it'll yeah. keep you appealing. appealing, let's say. Get a nice sexy inside. Do yoga. On all levels. Yeah. And it'll make <laughs> you look nice at the beach as well. Yes. Okay. How last question, how can our audience get in touch with you and how can we support you in your dharma? Please stay in touch with me uh, on my website. I keep my travel schedule there as well as my New York uh, classes. And you can connect with me on social media through the website. It's omjerome.com. 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 All right, Jerome, happy birthday to you. Thank you again for spending an hour with me. Um, I really appreciate it. I know our listeners will too. Uh, and I hope you have a great rest of the day. Thank you. Beautiful time. Thanks, Henry. Namaste. And thanks to all the listeners. If you got something out of this episode, if you like Dharma Talk and want to keep it going, please do me a huge favor and subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. I know it's not the most convenient thing to do, but it makes all the difference in getting the show out there and more visible to other people who can benefit from it. And hey, if you've got feedback or ideas or you want to get in touch with me, you can do that on Instagram at Henry Wins. Otherwise, I'll talk to you next week. And until then, keep living your dharma.